0: Malm works in the Department of Human Geography at Lund University. He's a scholar of human ecology and environmental history and has written a bunch of terrific books. The Progress of This Storm, Nature and Society in a Warming World, Fossil Capital, The Rise of Steam Power and the Roots of Global Warming, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and most recently White Skin Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fascism, which he co-authored with the Zetkin Collective. In our interview, Mom addresses some of his claims about the use of political counterviolence and the ability of social movements to regulate it. Mom is making the case for thinking more deeply about the almost inevitable radicalization of generations of young people that are waking up in a world that has been basically abandoned to the interests of fossil capital. The intergenerational violence of climate inaction should translate into anger one emotion that we know is conducive to mobilization. But what kind of mobilization? What kind of anger? And what place does hope have in this political dynamic? Given that the globe's richest 1% bears the greatest responsibility for the climate crisis, it makes sense, Mom suggests, to guide anger in the political direction of undoing the extraction and extortion the violence created through fossil capitalism as a system that benefits its biggest boosters while condemning the rest of us to what he calls the death machine of global heating. It's still politically imperative, Malm says here, for social movements to make a case through communication and the intentional pursuit of publicity for their radical objectives, but this must be coupled with confrontation. And in this moment of impasse, when persuasion mostly hasn't worked, where it's clear that we need political dynamics that include a state that's willing to accept the realities implied by a socially just energy transition, Mom's research is remarkable for its interdisciplinarity, its militancy, and the forthrightness of his writing. We're we're at a moment, of course, now, especially where you've got like the UN Environment uh, Program issuing a report called Making Peace with Nature, using that kind of language of like armistice, where they're attempting to address the extent to which humanity is literally, quote, waging war on nature. You know, in the words of Secretary, uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, you know, it's about uh, uh, identifying the accelerating erosion of life itself on Earth. I, I just recently attended a talk by Kara uh, Daggett, uh, who's also been on this podcast, and I asked her about a certain anti-capitalist tolerance for violence. Um, And specifically your sense of the the kind of need for a radical flank of climate militancy in order to kind of get through this time of impasse and intractability. What I'm interested in is the sort of um, ambivalence to some extent in your work about what you call the art of political violence. You see it as a calculation and a kind of secondary supplementary strategy for advancing this struggle against a seemingly invincible evil, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like I've really uh, uh, as I say found your work um illuminating and especially like alongside my reading of The Force of Nonviolence by Judith Butler. You know, Butler talks about the need to storm fences, but she's also adamant that violence is a force that's always on the verge of getting out of hand, of spiraling kind of out of control. Um I wondered if you could speak to This essay that you recently wrote for Verso's website, basically, where you're responding to a number of different critiques of your book, "How to Blow Up a Pipeline." In that essay, you talk about how there are plenty of cases in history that show violence is, in fact, uh, not impossible to control. Right? It's not spinning automatically into bloody vendettas. Do can you can you speak to that specific idea that you know violence is not necessarily something that is impossible to control, and how this narrative of nonviolence kind of stands outside of history?
1: Well, yeah. First of all, Scott, it, it's uh, it's an honor to be with you, and thanks so much for for the generous and kind words on on uh, on the book. Um, I I I must admit that I haven't read Judith Butler's um, The Force of Nonviolence except for a, a chapter, I think, on the death drive that is included in 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 that book. Mm-hmm. So I can't really comment on her uh, take on those issues. But the idea that violence, as soon as you start engaging in, in, a, in a kind of violence, and this would presumably include property destruction, when it's out there, it's just uh, uncontainable and it it will automatically yeah, uh, f- bring on a, 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 a spiral of violence. Yeah. Uh, I'm not denying that that risk exists, obviously. But uh, for the kind of uh, political violence um used by certain social movements, I don't think it's entirely correct because movements can set up limits to the kind of violence that they deploy and keep those limits in place. And the the, the, the example that I drawn in, in that text that you referred to is the George Floyd uprising in the US last year which included quite a lot of counter-violence from protesters, mostly in the form of property destruction. But since police uh, often tend to protect the property that you want to destroy, this also included certain kinds of militant engagement with the police as in throwing projectiles of various kinds against the police, uh, such as when people stormed the police station in the third precinct in Minneapolis uh, three days after the murder of of Floyd. And uh, that was... um, A violence, a kind of violence that did not target human beings. Uh, It was not the goal of that violence to kill police officers. And this was, I'm not sure that this was actually a a matter of much internal debate in the movement. I think it developed almost organically uh, and a kind of collective self-discipline emerged in the movement that uh, inhibited people who might have had any ideas of arming themselves and, and, and going up to cops and assassinating them or I don't know, sending suicide bombers into police headquarters or something like that and prevented them from doing so because there was I think a general understanding in the movement that some kinds of violence we can uh, engage in and uh, even win popular support for and notably there was that poll that showed that a majority of Americans actually supported storming that police station but other kinds of violence would burn away our popular support. So, uh, and it's not—it's not that it was technically impossible to engage in those forms of violence, because I mean, obviously there are uh, quite a few guns around in the U.S. Who you could potentially pick up guns and go out and, and uh, assassinate cops. No one did that, despite uh, uh, something like twenty or thirty or twenty-five or even thirty million people demonstrating uh, after the murder of George Floyd. So you would imagine that some people <laughs> would have entertained those those ideas but no one did that for a very good reason and that was that would have been a step too far mm-hmm. and that just shows that even in in this moment of uh, of in this case nationwide rage over the violence perpetrated against african-americans did not translate into uncontrollable counter violence and you you have uh, i mean there are a lot of a lot of other cases of political movements that, uh, that deliberately engage in certain forms of violence, but decide that, no, we're not going to engage in other forms of violence. So uh, I'll take two uh, very, very different examples just to support this, uh, this thesis. One is uh, anti-fascist action, uh, in famously known as Antifa in the, in, in the US discourse. Uh, anti-fascist action in my country, Sweden, has long been uh, engaging in militant resistance against organized fascists and Nazis. So that means uh, using certain types of violence in confrontation with those Nazis. But uh, anti-fascist action in Sweden decided, and this of course applies to all other countries as well, decided very early on that we're never going to kill a Nazi. And no matter how many anti fascists and uh, people of color that have been killed by Nazis in Sweden over the past uh, 30 years, I believe it's about 20 people or something like that that have been killed by Nazis. Uh, And no matter all the uh, intense confrontations and uh, uh, looming vendettas between Nazi activists and anti fascists, we, uh, or rather the, the, the anti fascist action, uh, organization, I'm not an active member any longer, has never uh, transgressed and crossed that line into actually killing a Nazi because it has stayed stayed to the uh, committed to the principle that that would massively uh, harm the cause and killing someone is prima facie a, a, a bad thing to do. So all other things considered, when you start looking at it, it's a bad thing to do. It can be justified in, in very particular circumstances but if the effects of killing someone is to do further damage to the cause that you're, you're struggling for, then the, the uh, principal ban on killing is just reinforced. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a completely different case in a, an entirely different setting is the uh, uh, organization of Hamas that has engaged in quite extreme political violence, including suicide bombings. But Hamas made a decision early on, unlike other factions in the Palestinian resistance movement, to never engage in political violence outside of the land of Palestine. So, you, you know, you had the PFLP doing hijackings and various types of very violent actions uh, all over the world. Hamas has never done that. And that that shows that even if you're engaging in the most extreme types of political violence, in this case, suicide bombings, you can still, if you are an organization with discipline, maintain principles and again this is not because hamas didn't have supporters or the logistical capacities to uh, engage in those kind of actions in other parts of the world it's just that it made a decision that it's more strategic for us to stay inside the land of palestine this is not to say that i support hamas terrorism it's just one more case to to uh, try to bring home uh, my interpretation of these things that uh, to uh, uh, an extent that is often underestimated, the the calibration of political violence is in fact a product of decisions at the hands of the social movements that engage with it.
0: Yeah, I think that's fascinating, this idea of different intensities of violence that are responses to, um, you know, violence, of course, being done to you, like a structural violence that is a condition of everyday life. I mean, um, it's something that, Um, for for many of us in the West is sort of unimaginable. I mean, this is another main thread in how to blow up a pipeline, this idea of, you know, like individualism and self-preservation, and that these are kind of, in the West especially, like very powerful impediments to a form of resistance that could lead us into a politics of, you know, mass self-preservation. And, you know, I'm thinking especially here through um, Angela Davis's point in an interview with Astor Taylor, Uh, That neoliberalism imposes certain like restrictive temporalities uh, that limit our scope to, you know, just our individual lifespan, our own self-interest. I definitely want to come back to the question of sort of strategic pacifism and, and the calibration of violence in particular movements. But in terms of, you know, your writing on the climate crisis specifically, you know, you don't necessarily talk that much about an intergenerational responsibility or these restrictive temporalities could you maybe speak to that at all? Is that one of the ways in which you know, our, our thinking is limited? It's a very good question, the, the intergenerational thing, because
1: one of, the, one of the outstanding aspects of the wave of climate activism that we saw in 2019, and that really, at least in Europe, carried the movement to a scale that it had never uh, approached before, was that it was not based on class. It was not based on race. It was not based on gender. It was based on age. It was fundamentally a youth movement, that uh, spun out of Greta Thunberg and other school children uh, striking in protest against what they perceived as the destruction of their future. And age is not a category that. Uh, Marxist analysis for one has <laughs> to my knowledge ever engaged with seriously hmm. but but in the in the climate philosophy and climate ethics intergenerational aspects are 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 absolutely central to the problem because uh, because because of this temporality that you that so fundamentally constitutes the climate problem means that uh, every generation that engages in large scale fossil fuel combustion uh, essentially destroys some of the uh, uh, life conditions of the following generation. Uh, and the youth movement in 2019 was, it appears, based on a kind of intuitive insight into that uh, uh, intergenerational violence, if you like, with, uh, with those kids going out on the streets in the knowledge that their future is, uh, is being ruined and that they will suffer the consequences of what people have done before they were even born. And uh, uh, obviously the, the intergenerational injustice is not the only one that, that constitutes the, 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 the climate crisis and all the, the violence and injustice being perpetrated within it. There is also the crucial uh, distinction between, the, between rich and poor and between humans and other species but uh, given the salience of age in the movement in in 2019 i think it's something that needs to be theorized by uh, uh scholars who who work on uh, on on climate more more fundamentally than than what we've seen so far uh, i'm not entirely up to date i should say with 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 what's been written here because I've seen at least one paper about children as a kind of new inhabiting a new position of climate precarity or something like that. So I, I guess there is work out there that is being done. That it's just that I, I I haven't read it and haven't followed it as as much as I should. But I do I do think that this is something that needs to be uh, grappled with and and thought about. Also, precisely because if there is if there is any group that is going to engage in any kind of escalation of tactics, it will be primarily young people, and. Uh, Young young people around the world will have to deal with with the consequences that are almost literally in the pipeline, and uh, if there is going to be any kind of radicalization, it's going to be uh, based on that age cohort, if you like.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think when you ask at the end of uh, your book, does this climate movement possess a radical flank? You're thinking through the the symbolic effect of uh, Greta Thunberg's. Uh, activism, right? Like it's this idea of an intergenerational radicalization due to uh, climate precarity. But yeah, I, w- I kind of wanted to stay with this question of violence and strategic pacifism. You know, like you you note throughout How to Blow Up a Pipeline that nonviolence, quote, confers upon the movement a bundle of well-known tactical advantages. And you've kind of already addressed some of those. The history that you provide, this kind of genealogy of violence and nonviolence in these movements is about trying to expose this as something that um, is a very selective history. My question, I guess, is like, is the argument then for strategic pacifism always just about courting public opinion? Where does the rejection of potentially necessary acts of forceful resistance come from? And in particular, why might it be that, you know, in the U.S. and elsewhere, there seems to be this curious inverse relationship between the everyday level of violence in a space, the kind of background banality of violence, and the public's tolerance for acts of violent resistance.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that inverse relationship, I I think, is is quite strong. And I think, it. I mean, not intuitively, perhaps, but logically, it makes sense that the more overwhelming the... The violence of the dominant structure is the more unacceptable is the idea that any kind of counter violence from below. Yeah, I mean the the, the less the less acceptance there would be for that that sort of counter violence. Now, but I'm afraid that the, the argument in in how to blow up a pipeline around those things has already become a little bit obsolete because the contrast between the U.S. and France that I draw on there too. So the the argument is that. In France, there is a much greater uh, tolerance for things like fighting with cops or smashing windows and destroying property because there is a popular revolutionary culture that is still glowing. And uh, and sometimes the, the embers are, are shooting up or quite regularly, in fact, in, in various types of revolts in the country. Whereas in the US, the argument is in the book, the, the power of capital is so uh, unlimited and it's based on a history of so much violence against uh, the indigenous populations in in the US and the the african americans that were enslaved uh, and the result of this uh, uh, yeah suffocation or saturation of capitalist violence is uh, that you cannot countenance any kind of uh, resistance that that goes beyond uh, meek pacifism, but that diagnosis was, uh, uh, in a sense, overhauled by the the Floyd episode because, mm-hmm. I mean, these things are not set in stone; they can they can shift quite dramatically. And I think one one expression of the of, of the radicalization of segments of the American population was precisely the uh, approval of property destruction in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. That I think, uh, I mean, it, it, the parameters of, uh, of of political opposition shifted uh, during those months, uh, and of course, that that's that's a process that has been unfolding in the U.S. for some time, with with all the the uh, deep and structural divisions of that country coming to the surface in various forms. Um, uh, so uh, I mean, I think these changes can, ch- these things can change quite rapidly, and if you think about this in terms of, of climate politics, I think uh, very serious climate disasters that kill quite a lot of people than what we've seen so far will also change people's perceptions of what is violence, what is, what is lethal to people, what how they can be killed and what is legitimate to do in response to that so given the precisely this temporality of of the climate crisis i think certain forms of radicalization are almost inevitable uh, and if they are not we uh, w- all we can expect is for humanity to resign itself to to uh, the death machine that is global heating and that's not, that's not an uh, uh, an alternative that we should bank on i think i mean if if there is a Uh, a survival instinct still uh, in operation in the human species you would expect some fight back to occur sooner or later and maybe the question is not uh, whether there should be violence or not but rather when the violence starts uh, on the climate front how do we contain it and and give it political direction and impose essential limitations on it so precisely to avoid any kind of spiraling or or
0: or indiscriminate violence. Yeah, that's so interesting. In your book you're outlining this timeline in which things can shift as you say where you know as you, as you write the mass mobilizations of the third cycle of climate activism um become impossible to ignore uh where you know hypothetically peaceful protests and effective communication somehow works to kind of seize a shift in public consciousness and then you know, parliamentary politics makes it possible to push an environmental audit and restructuring into place. But your sense clearly is that the ruling classes are not going to be talked into action. You give the reader a really, a set of really difficult uh, options learn to die, accepting that, you know, a kind of climate fatalism, to use your term, or enter a new phase of resistance beyond peaceful protest. You know, the problem is that fossil fuels really do represent a material form of contemporary capitalism and, you know, property is still this unassailable idea. Um, and so in, in your argument, and I think this is something you've reinforced a number of times in a, in a bunch of interviews, is that that destruction can't be random, right? It's all about this kind of tactical kind of routing of this anger into something pr- productive. And, you know, I, I guess I wonder here about the role of persuasion. Like in the sense that targeted timely destruction could theoretically be prefaced or framed by the work that you do, for example, like a tactic of articulating a sympathetic antagonism. I mean, you seem to be suggesting this when you write that we, quote, should posit a law of a tendency of the receptivity to rise in a rapidly warming world, you know, rather than presuming the species wide um, death wish. Is there still some role as it were for for forms of advocacy journalism you know theorization
1: yes yes i i think that if if climate activists at some point starting aging in property destruction on more than a micro scale is that's that's all what we've had so far uh, that kind of property destruction needs to come along with texts that explain what what we or they are doing and why, and uh, make the case for the legitimacy of that action. Action that that just happens without any kind of, communique or or uh, publicity material that uh, justifies it is far less successful. Is far far less likely to be successful when it comes to. Uh, to gaining mass support and using that action to further po- the political dynamic that you want to see so uh, i I think that activists contemplating the, this kind of tactics should really uh make a serious effort to uh, yeah to to read and think and write and uh, uh, make uh, arguments for uh, doing what they might be doing. Uh, I I don't see any other way to um, to sort of reach out to to masses not involved in the specific action and to uh, connect such an action to what's going on in a larger movement. And let me, let me just also say that property destruction can come in in many different forms. It can be done by small groups of people who plan it in advance or it can be done by masses of people in the heat of the moment so for instance with that case of the storming of the police station in minneapolis that that wasn't something that a little small group of people had planned before it it, it developed out of the confrontation between uh, very angry demonstrators and the cops uh, around that building well, on the other hand, in the BLM uh, movement last year, you saw people going up to statues of, you know, Confederate generals or slave traders in in the US and the UK and tearing them down with various tools that they had brought with them, and that clearly was another kind of property destruction. It was mediated and was planned by small groups, and I think in the climate struggle you could see both and and many other kinds of property destruction, as in small groups of people going to take down. Uh, sources of fossil fuel combustion uh, and explaining why they're doing that. Actually, it's, it's, it's happening right now with, with Extinction Rebellion diversifying in the UK into uh, uh, escalated forms of tactics. So s- some of XR's activists are uh, having a, a, um, a campaign to systematically smash windows at some of the mega banks pouring... Trillions of dollars into fossil fuel extraction, so they go up to the to the banks of Barclays or HSBC or those, those banks and and uh, smash the windows, and they of course explain to people why they're doing this, and uh, I think that's that's the right way to go about it when you do that kind of property destruction. And but I think the the more spontaneous mass-based property destruction, of course, also need need to be put into uh a kind of uh, a discursive context where you have a movement uh, explaining why this is happening. And that can be, I mean, that can be done on Twitter or it can be done with books or anything in between, but it, surely it
0: needs to be done. And, you know, it kind of, you know, leads into a question I had around this work that I've been reading on sabotage in particular, you know, and, and these concepts in your, like I've been trying to kind of build out from the concepts in your book around intelligent sabotage, what you call the know-how of grand property destruction. Um, you know, one of the influential texts seems to be Evan Calder Williams' Manual Override, uh, which argues specifically for this need uh, for expertise in enacting sabotage, you know, expertise that's built into the system of capitalism. Um, and I actually encountered Williams' ideas through through this essay by Darren Barney called Beyond Carbon Democracy, uh, which develops this idea of what he calls the saboteurial subject, which he, you know, really sees because, you know, you're talking about how publicity is still part um, of the overall game plan, right? It's not an either or thing. Um, He's a little bit more prescriptive in this article. And he's like really deeply indebted to Williams on the point that climate activism should try to move beyond privileging speeches, uh, texts, high profile events that are designed to gain publicity. Um, you know, He talks about how sabotage instead is a mode of action strategically addressed to mobility rather than to pu- publicity. And you've written extensively about how you know, fossil capital is about the movement of, of objects, goods, people, the search for cheap labor. Um, and I think he's, he's thinking through that as well. Like He's trying to imagine a form of resistance that is, as he puts it, non-discursive, that isn't concerned with persuasion. Mm. It's about just setting a struggle in motion. Instead, he says there's no need to promote sabotage because sabotage is already underway. You know, does he have a point from your perspective about, you know, moving away from a gestural politics and into a phase of direct action or or sabotage? Or is this like deployment of a generalized dismantling of fossil fuel infrastructure in some way playing it safe? Like, is it too theoretical um, in in a certain way?
1: well on the question of whether actions speak for themselves and can well if if that's the argument that he makes to a degree i i i i'm in sympathy with that and i'm i'm in sympathy with the the position that we need to s- switch from just producing one article after another and and one you know one library of books after another about how bad the climate crisis is to to engaging in some kind of action of, of corresponding magnitude, I'm, I'm in total sympathy with that. But my my own... Uh, how shall I put it? My own ideals about how a well-executed uh, action uh, uh, appears is that it, it it is part of a much broader kind of un- ongoing unrest and... Uh, for that to work out, there needs to be some kind of words attached to the action. Uh, perhaps not necessarily, but that—that's just—I mean—that's how I have have seen those things. I mean, when I was at my most activist as a as a teenager in in this country back in the nineties, we, we we always did direct actions. But we always made sure to, to 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 attach some kind of communique or, or explanation to to it, to uh, try to explain to people what we were doing, and, and seeing that as the only way to get the support that we wanted and to uh, have a a productive dialectic uh, in relation to other kinds of, of activism, and the idea that uh, you can have. Uh, a worldwide direct action campaign demobilizing the fossil fuel infrastructure without the need for political mediation. I mean, we're talking about the largest technical infrastructure on the planet, basically. And the idea that people could rise up and just take it down by themselves, all of it, isn't plausible to me. I mean, how would something like that play out in a country like Saudi Arabia, which is obviously totally central to to the fossil economy, uh, or, or, or even Russia, uh, I, don't, I don't see the transition unfolding uh, without a political dynamic that includes states and legislation and agreements of various kinds. It's, it's just that states will never do what's necessary without mass pressure. And that mass pressure apparently needs to, to be heightened and, uh, and potentially include more radical uh, types of action than, than what we've seen so far. So my argument has never been that we can bring down the entire fossil fuel infrastructure by means of sabotage. It's just that I think that we in the climate movement need to experiment with, with more types of tactics than what we've had so far to... Uh, uh, make the enemy feel the heat really, and uh, start to instigate the processes that are necessary to to get get out of fossil fuels. But these processes will have to include very different agents than activists. I mean, they will have to include states. I'm I'm convinced.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's something that um, again adds a certain clarity to your writing. It's maybe fashionable to be just, you know, against any notion of the state or sovereignty. You know, your idea is that, you know, I think writing can serve a different kind of function to open up ways of imagining a way of being anti-capitalist. Not, as you say, in another world, but in this world. Um, I was, you know, just generally struck by the extent of your research, uh, the, the work that you do in Corona Climate Chronic Emergency around, you know, how bats act as reservoirs for so many viruses. Um there was so much in that section of the book that I just didn't know and hadn't read anywhere else. Um I wanted to ask I guess in terms of uh methodology how you do go about doing your research. Um could you speak to just how you approach writing in terms of that you know transition from cobbling together research to you know actually making an intervention. Well I mean
1: so this the corona book that I wrote which was really an exercise in speed writing uh, and it therefore has some serious flaws, particularly towards the end. That book and this pipeline book are brief interventions into political situations or conjunctures. And, uh, yeah, the, the Corona book was based on me sitting uh, locked up in in the apartment where we were living in, in Neukölln just uh, swallowing uh, one... Uh, peer-reviewed a scientific paper on zoonotic spillover after another, and then uh, trying my best to sum up uh, what other people have, uh, have found, because I've never done any primary research about uh, zoonotic spillover or anything related to that. Uh, my, my own research, let me engage in a little bit of shameless self-promotion here, because the research I've done in recent years has been mostly about the far right, Mm-hmm. And uh, the Zetkin Collective, which I'm part of, is now finally uh, releasing, or Verso is releasing, the book that we've been working on for uh, what is it now three years?
0: A massive um, tome, right?
1: Yeah, white skin, black fuel on the danger of fossil fascism. It's a, it's more of a tome, yes, than than those brief interventions. It's nearly six hundred pages, and that's that's been an exercise in a, in in collective research where we twenty people have worked together. Looking at what the far right has said and done about climate and energy in certain European countries and the US and Brazil and using different methodologies. So it's it's quite a lot of methodological anarchy in that book Hmm. because there are so many people involved in the project and some of them, for instance, Irma Allen, our collective member who's been working on. Uh, Polish coal miners and their relation to right wing populism she i mean she's done the, the kind of classical ethnographic uh, anthropology work staying with those miners living with them for a year being inside the mines and talk to them and all that so uh, she, in her research on Poland there she's drawn obviously on that kind of methods uh, others of of us have we we've, we've essentially just collected uh, material from media of what those those parties have done so yeah it's it's a bit of an anarchy there. Uh, right now, I'm doing more classical environmental history research, uh, so uh, sitting in archives and stuff like that, which I, as a real history nerd, uh, enjoy immensely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the liberties that I have in my job as um, as a lecturer in uh, in or what am I now, associate professor in human ecology. Is that this this discipline is so free and transdisciplinary in its self-identification that you can do almost whatever you want. You can switch from eco-criticism to, uh, to yeah, to contemporary environmental politics, to environmental history, and and uh, almost anything. Uh, yeah, and that that's the kind of freedom that I think uh, is a privilege and. Uh, yeah, it it allows for this kind of jumping between different styles of writing and different kinds of research, and and that of course uh, is problematic because <laughs> you uh, dabble in different fields, or I I dabble in different fields, but it's yeah, it's it it has a sense of freedom to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think there'd be um, almost a kind of nerve wracking quality to that freedom for a lot of scholars who still you know, operate within certain kind of disciplinary boundaries um, and, and really have, I think a very concrete idea of who their audience is. Like, you know, when, when white skin, black fuel comes out, it's going to just, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to attract, I think an incredibly wide array um, of people, but, you know, I kind of wanted to maybe uh, uh, return to as it were like the limits and possibilities of like publicity you know, publishing and performance. Uh, And I wondered if we could talk about the, you know, the power and importance of like tone in public communication, you note, for example, a shift in Greta Thunberg's, uh, you know, style of communication, especially um, when she addressed the UN um, and, and, you know, announced we will not, we will not forgive you. There was a shift um, in that moment toward a certain kind of anger in 2019 You know, the, there's this idea in your verso piece that you just published of learning to articulate rage, to stop being so timid. Um, You know, I'm specifically thinking of a talk you gave, which begins with this diatribe against Trump's xenophobic travel ban against Muslim countries. And and I guess I wanted to ask, like, is that performance of anger ever calculated or planned? Or is it always spontaneous? Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Because like, it's it's some somewhat unacademic yes yes and i wonder to what extent it's a self-aware and strategic thing as an activist and an academic to use communication to try and gain some kind of traction that you know just being a lecturer isn't necessarily going to give you <laughs> well i mean uh
1: people people who know me closely as a person but this is perhaps beside the point. But they they would they would say that I I'm it's not very hard for me to express anger, right. uh, at least about political things. I I don't think I'm I'm my, my political temperament, if you like, has I guess well largely been inflected through through anger because uh when i became uh, politically active in the 1990s in the struggle against racism uh, the far right in sweden and uh, yeah and then in the palestine solidarity movement uh i, I was i was upset, uh about things and uh, that that is uh, a mode i lapse into quite quite easily uh, so it's it's not calculated in the sense that i've you know, been sitting in my chair and thought about what effect, what emotion should I convey? What's most effective? Well, anger seems like the best one, so let's go for that. It's it comes a little bit more spontaneously than that, I I think. But but I do think a case can be made for the importance of anger. You know, there is this research in in climate psychology about should we f- scare people or should we give them hope? What's most of, what's the kind of uh, uh, emotional state that's most conducive to action is it alarm is it anxiety is it uh, uh, optimism and uh, as far as, I, as i've read up on this field uh, and again you can i'm sure you can find gaps in my, my knowledge there but they, they will certainly be many but my my impression is that the research indicates that the one emotion that really drives social movement mobilization tends to be anger and this is obviously what we saw after the murder of George Floyd last year and innumerable other examples. And the climate movement is getting there, but it still has a way to go to learn to articulate all the anger that we should feel about the systematic destruction of the climate uh, done by, by fossil fuel companies above uh, anyone else. And uh, uh, that that anger should be expressed by by activists, but also by scholars who who think that it's important to to <laughs> try to stop and reverse climate catastrophe uh, it's it's an it's the i mean it's a very legitimate emotional response to what's happening in the world i mean just take a report such as the one put out by Oxfam and Stockholm Environment Institute uh, have about half a year ago that that says that one per, the richest 1% of humanity has emitted twice as much CO2 as the poorest half of humanity since the 1990s, this being uh, computed on the basis of consumption. Uh, and you can have uh, quarrels about that. Uh, but, but clearly, uh, the, the ultra-rich are responsible for systematic uh, destruction of this planet in, in their role of, uh, as consumers, but perhaps even more in their role as investors and uh, owners of capital. And uh, I mean, these figures are in themselves mind-boggling and dizzying and should make people extremely angry, Mm -hmm. as should continued fossil fuel extraction. For instance, Total, the the single largest private company in France, planning to go deeper into the Arctic to drill for even more fossil gas. I mean, what other reaction than anger could that induce? Well, it could, of course, induce total despair and passivity. But these are precisely the feelings that are not conducive to action they're conducive to to desisting from action mm-hmm. so the one action that can prompt, the one sorry the one feeling that can prompt people to do something in these contexts is as far as i can tell anger and then if, if so then that's something that we should learn to express
0: yeah and um and you're certainly adamant that there's something um potentially demoralizing about um the the ultra rich existing within this kind of you know, the space outside of the social, right? The space of, of permanent escape. Yeah. And, and you say like a climate movement that does not want to eat the rich will never hit home. So like that's working to me beyond notions of political will or of social license, these terms that we sometimes get uh, around fossil fuel extraction. Mm. And you're, you're drawing this like firm distinction between the interests of the ruling class and the working class. Um, and, and, so many yeah moments in, in the book made me angry. I mean, the idea that 56 countries in the world have an annual per capita emissions lower than the emissions from one individual flying once between London and New York. So you have that on the one hand, but then you have, as you say, the kind of demoralizing effects of seeing a super yacht or confronting the sheer ubiquity of these gas guzzling SUVs. Mm. Uh, I think what I'd like to ask you about is I haven't asked enough, perhaps, about your book, Corona, Climate, Chronic Emergency, which you say you kind of um, sped through the writing of. Uh, There are significant parts of that book that are devoted to distinguishing between the pandemic and the climate crisis. And I think you do this work of you know debunking certain knee-jerk assumptions about the major points of divergence. So COVID is more visible; the state knows how to attack it. Moreover, like the solutions are clear; the path to a kind of warlike triumph is is imaginable. And your point is that the solution is actually quite simple when it comes to the climate crisis: stop the emissions. Yeah. And I wanted to maybe link this to your engagement with the situation in India. You say. You know, in both the COVID crisis and the climate crisis, hopelessness is not a natural state. It's compounded by inaction. If you don't have a state that's capable of action, that is unwilling to take action, it breeds a certain hopelessness. We're seeing that in India right now, uh, the inability in specific places to actually, you know, target problems at their roots. Like, what would it look like, I guess, to have a public that um, was sort of radicalized and mobilized by... Um, you know, problems of just like the structure itself, acceleration itself, the age of fossil capital. Mm. Can we can we imagine that level of comprehensive politics in the current moment?
1: Well, yeah, it would, it would even it would need a massive breakthrough out of this self-reinforcing spiral of paralysis that you described so eloquently, because it really is. I mean, the the less that is being done to mitigate the, the climate crisis, the less people will think can be done and so on and so forth. Uh, and to reverse that, you need uh, quite a significant shift in in the direction of the spiral. And you would have a you you would have, you would need to produce a recursive cycle of people thinking, well, look, we can actually uh, take apart some of this infrastructure to this, you know, drawing in more people and having political initiatives that uh, work in the same direction and so on. I mean, I I, if, I I don't think that such a shift is impossible. I think it's hard to predict how it could come about. I think, I mean, something like Joe Biden's recent announcement that US emissions will be slashed by half to 2030. I mean, it's obviously insufficient, as many point out, but it's also an, an incredibly dramatic break, break with the with with position of, of, of Biden's predecessor in the White House and uh, if anything like that would 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 get underway you would have rising expectations i think that's what we saw during the obama period where you know as woefully inadequate as obama's climate policy was and as 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 bad as his uh, de facto promotion of fossil fuel production in the us was even his his uh, his ideology production, his his talk about the climate crisis being real, uh, served to to raise people's expectations and translate into more climate activism towards particularly the end of of his second term. And uh, 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 it, as as uh, as limited as it will be, the kind of climate reformism that someone like Joe Biden could possibly Launch uh, might helped to uh, or contribute to a kind of a, a wider process that that includes much more radical types of action as well. Uh, I, I don't think that it, yeah. I mean, the sort of mystery that we see playing out in India right now uh, is perhaps the most likely scenario for 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 for, the, for climate as well, where you know one disaster is just compounded by another, and you have. Uh, general gloom and despair, but the, the anger should kick in sooner or later, and it, it, it in the best cases, it kicks in and it does so in, in, conjointly with some kind of political movement, uh, some kind of emotion in policymaking or whatever you want to call it, more official institutional political sphere. Uh, that that can start to turn the tables and and see things moving in the other direction. But w- we'll see. All of these things, of course, uh, are up to what people actually do. It's it's not uh, it's not predetermined. It's not modeled. It's it's a function of what people uh, think and do and the kind of history that they make, obviously under circumstances not of their own choosing. But still people can make uh, history and, and try to intervene it and I- intervene in it and, and shift it in other directions. That's what we have to believe, otherwise we can just lay down and learn to die.
0: Right, this climate fatalism that you talk about, and you use this, this phrase, um, every revolt has been discouraged by the elders of defeatism. You know, you're saying that even, and especially when things are so dire, when things are so miserable, like, that's the moment where it doesn't become like more outlandish to, to imagine a way out. It becomes more necessary. Yeah. You, know, you say, like, revolt and revenge are not really negated by um, the fact that we're on the cusp of unimaginable damage. Yeah. You know, saying it's too late is, is consigning people to die. Yeah. It can't be a, an option. You say we have to reprogram ethical codes yeah. to kind of match that. Um, yeah, so I really appreciate your writing.